Thank you, Craig, for reading the word this morning. Thank you, Joe, for sharing uh, the after voltage uh, results. And also, we're so excited about the giving that's come in. And thank you to many, many of you from Hillcrest who participated in that giving. And uh, that's just amazing. You know, I was I just quickly, before I jump into talking about today, what I'm supposed to talk about is uh, I... On the night of voltage, and I've seen this now, what, 17 or 18 voltages I think I've been to, um, there's that moment after the skit is done, and then Joe got up to just talk and share with the kids. And, you know, it's a crowd that's sort of like, you know, sort of bubbling with, like, uh, all sorts of energy, and but also they're sort of going, hey, we're here for a party, and someone's talking to us, and we don't really know if we want to listen. And that's always the case every single year. But I thought Joe did an incredible job of engaging uh, the crowd that was here and then just really sharing them where hope is found and that it's found in Christ. And uh, I was just really impressed with that this year. Uh, I said, you know, I think that's about the best I've heard it done uh, this year is, is uh, here's this crowd that isn't sure that they want to listen, and he got them to listen enough that he could share about uh, where hope is found and how he's found hope through Christ. So I thought that was just amazing. And, you know, kudos to Joe and his whole team. They've done an amazing job here in this building. And I like that he affirmed that one part of the DNA of our church, and that is uh, if we have to put holes in walls in order to reach kids, we will put holes in walls to reach kids. And that's been part of the DNA of the church. And no matter how nice this church gets, and there's lots of things we're going to still pretty up in this place. We never want to lose that in our DNA. This is a tool. It's not an object to worship. That's what this building is. It's a tool for the ministry that God has given us to do. So we just always want to hang on to that and thank the Lord that he put that in our hearts and put that in people's hearts years ago and that we get to carry on that tradition. All right, well, I'm going to jump into this as fast as I can because I'm continuing the story, continuing the story. Happy New Year, by the way. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. It's a new year, a fresh start. It's awesome. Um, we left off the story before Christmas with the story of David and Goliath, and that was exciting. And then last week, if you were away for Christmas holiday somewhere, Kurt did an amazing job of tackling the story of David and Bathsheba. And uh, I would encourage you to listen to that. It was well worth listening to, listening to. He pointed out something really, he pointed out lots of great stuff. I'll just grab one. Um, the difference between Saul and David was not that one guy sinned and the other guy didn't sin. In fact, they both sinned in lots of different ways, big ways. And, uh, but the difference was when Saul was confronted with his sin, he uh, made excuses or he denied that it was sin. Or he got defensive. But when David was confronted with his sin, he repented. And he agreed with God that his sin was sin. And then he, uh, he turned from his sin. And it's funny, that difference uh, is one of the big significant things of why David was called a man after God's own heart. And Saul was considered unqualified to be the king of Israel. So those two kings... King Saul, the first king, the unqualified king, the one who was rejected by God because of his unwillingness to repent. And then David, the one who had a heart after God, even though his life had a lot of sin in it. King one, king two, and today I get to tackle king three, which is 
Solomon. So you heard Craig read the, the charge from David to Solomon. Walk in obedience to him, to God. Keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you go, so that the Lord may keep his promise to me. David's saying this. And this is the promise. If your descendants watch how they live, if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you'll never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. In other words, father to son, we've got a good thing going, son. Don't mess it up. Right? Don't mess it up. It's great to have the favor and blessing of God in our lives. And we've experienced it. We've experienced more mercy and grace than we deserve as a family. Don't mess it up. So Solomon encounters God. The story of Solomon is that he encounters God in a dream. And I'm going to read you that, that experience. And in that dream, he has an opportunity to, uh, to uh, make a very unusual request. It says, at Gibeon, this is 1 Kings 3, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in, in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. If you were a young king over the nation of Israel, what would you ask for? Well, let's see what Solomon asked for. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. Not perfect, but he, was, he aligned himself with God, even in his repentance. You have continued this great kindness to him and has given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child now, he was a full-grown man, but still, this is how he saw himself. I'm only a little child, and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? So you hear Solomon's humble heart and, and also his worry at the same time and his request. And the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but you've asked for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will... Never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Oh, that's pretty remarkable. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. And then Solomon awoke and realized it had been a dream. It had been a dream, but God speaks through dreams can speak through dreams. Not every dream you've had is God speaking to you. Thank goodness, right? Because you've had some crazy dreams and uh, that's just because you had too much pizza. But there are dreams that God does speak through and this is one that he spoke through. Now, one of the things that's referenced in here is just the, the reality of that sometimes God gives you more than what you ask for. Now, sometimes this is great. Sometimes when you ask God for something, he just says, oh, you know, I'm not going to give you that. I've got something better in mind. And that's more than what you asked for because it's an upgrade. But other times it's like, God, I just want this. And God is pleased with that request. And in, in Solomon's scenario, because he just asked for wisdom to be able to be a good uh, judge and, and, and leader of his people because 
he saw it as this great overwhelming task. God not only gave him a wise and discerning heart, but he gave him more. Stuff he didn't ask for. He gave him wealth and he gave him honor. And uh, that's pretty cool. And uh, Ephesians 3.20 tells us about this nature of God. God is able to do more than we ask or imagine. He's able to do more than we ask or imagine in our lives. And you know what? He's willing to do more than we ask or imagine. That's the cool thing. He's also willing to do. But there's often conditions that, that you know, that make uh, that more likely to happen. All right. So sometimes when you ask for God for something, he gives you something better or more. And always when God gives you something, it's more than you deserve or more than I deserve, right? Especially since what the Bible teaches in the New Testament. You know, I'll go over it real quickly. The Bible teaches that the wages we deserve for our sin is spiritual death or separation from God. So that's pretty significant. That's what we deserve. But when we get relationship with God instead, because God sent Jesus to take our sins so we could have relationship with God, then we got to recognize that he gave us way more than we deserve. Way more than we, we deserve. So God can give you more than you ask for. You can't outgive God. I mean, he's the most generous giver. You think of the most famous verse in the Bible. It basically says that. For God so loved, so loved, so is like magnifying. He loved, but he so loved that he gave. God is the greatest giver. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So, in the New Testament, you see Jesus commanding his followers to seek his kingdom when they're worried about other things. So if you're worried about, what am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? Where am I going to go in the future? What's my life going to be like? What, what about this? What about, you know, worry about the future. He says, whoa, 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 settle that down. Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, these other things, they're like secondary blessings. They're not our main concern. Don't seek them. Don't, don't run after them. Don't make their, your, them your main thing. Go after God. Go after his kingdom. What is, what is his kingdom? His kingdom is made in his, he being king over you, his kingly reign in your life. Experience his leadership and his guidance. Experience his power and his majesty. Experience him as king in your life. Seek that. Go after that. Don't make these secondary blessings your main concern. But you know what? Often when you seek that, these other things come as well. And I was just at a wedding in Assiniboia over the Christmas break. And it was two families I know pretty well. And I was at the reception. And uh, it was sort of the welcomes to the family moment. And the two families were getting up. And it was interesting, you know, just how happy they were with the choices they're daughter and son had made in each other. And one of the things they both were expressing was, we're so thrilled that, you know, you found a husband or you found a wife, depending on who was speaking, that loves Jesus. And I was sitting there, and I'd had some conversations around the table. And as I'd had conversations around the table, I I began to just have the sense that, you know what, I I think there's a lot of good stuff happening in these families. No, they're not perfect families. They're people I know. They're my friends. They couldn't be perfect families because <laughs> they're friends with me. Um, but, there, but there was a measure of health and prosperity and strength in those families that stood out to me. And you know what it hit me? Secondary blessings. Secondary blessings. 
Because when they got up there, they didn't talk about that. They didn't say, man, I'm so glad you found a son or daughter who has a lot of money in their RSP. Or we're so glad that, that this is a great financial arrangement for us. Or, or we're, we're, you know, we're so glad that uh, you found someone that's really super, super good looking. No, they just said, we're just so thankful you found someone who also loves Jesus. So they were speaking out that seek, you for, seek first the kingdom of God principle. But I was seeing the secondary blessing all over the place. And I was saying, that's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, this isn't a trick. This isn't a how to trick God to give you secondary blessings. Because if you think that way, you're already not seeking the kingdom. You're seeking the secondary blessings. You're making them an idol. So it doesn't work that way. But I'm, just, I'm not telling you how to trick God because you can't. I'm just telling you, God is that good. God is that good. And I praise him for his goodness. I was, I was on the, a phone call with my mom, and she said, I got a letter from your uncle in England. It's the last, uh, uh, on my dad's side, it's the last surviving uncle or aunt. And so my uncle in England got a letter. Do you want me to read it to you? What do you usually say when that happens? You, 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 oh, goody, goody, Yes. Someone I've never met, I have never, like, I know, I, I think I met him once. I met him once in my life. And I, even though I've been to England twice, I never made it to where he lives, so I, he's, but he's been to Canada once. But, you know, I have no relationship with, but, and all of those cousins, I don't, I've never met any of them. But, you know, my wife and I just talked recently about, you know, on our bucket list is to go to England together someday. I've been a couple times, but let's go and visit people and and relatives we've never met and stuff like that. So I thought, oh, this is funny. So I said to my, my mom, yeah, I'd love to hear that letter. I'd love to hear where my relatives live and, you know, and start making a map in my mind of where we could stay for free when we're in England. And uh, I didn't say that out loud. But anyhow, I'd love to hear that letter. Go ahead, read that letter. So she starts reading the letter. And I thought, well, I've got three cousins over there, so just got to figure out which one of them I'm going to stay with, you know, when I, which, who's in the best touristy location. And... Uh, and so she starts reading it, and I got so confused so fast. And it wasn't, I mean, it's three cousins. That's not a lot to track. But the amount of locations that were described in the letter, it must have been like 10 or 11 locations. And I was like, what? what, what? And, and it was, I was like, well, who's married to who? And, and whose kids are which, with which? And, which? And, and I was like, and after a while, I was like, so, so they're divorced? And, and those ones are divorced? And they're divorced? Oh, they're all divorced? And they're like, yeah, they're all divorced. Oh, okay. And so are the other second marriages? Oh, some are and some aren't. And some third and some this and some, some have given up on marriage and different things. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I was having a hard time comprehending it. I have seven siblings. If I was to explain to you where we live, I would tell you. One in Regina, two in Moose Jaw, one in Saskatoon, one in Eston, two in Calgary. That took five seconds. Some of you might even remember what I just said. Maybe. I was just, my mind was blown. I said, this is, this is not working out for my plan to, you know. The end of the conversation ended, and I, I'm sitting there, and there's sort of a pause on the phone, and I actually said this to my mom. I said, boy, I'm, I don't know if I've ever felt this so strongly before, but I'm really glad that all of my siblings are still married to their first partner. And I don't say that as a, shade or, or a negative comment to anyone who's divorced. I mean, I have so many friends who are divorced, and there's so many different stories. So I, it's not like that. But I, it wasn't a sense of, how come my cousins are divorced? 
It was more a sense of, how come we're all still married? Like, really? We're not the sharpest tools in the drawer. We're not geniuses. I don't remember at any Christmas, any one of my brothers ever saying, you know what, I really got this marriage thing figured out. Or I've got this theory about relationships, and man, does it ever work. Like, when those books came out in the 1990s, like, um, you know, learning stuff for dummies, that was a godsend to our family. I mean, that was amazing. You know, marriage for dummies. You open the cover, and it basically just says, dear dummy. Idiots like us don't get to stay married to one woman for a whole lifetime unless we pray a lot, apologize a lot, and get forgiven a lot because it just doesn't happen. (laughs) That snort was worth the price of admission. I want to tell you, let's just dismiss right now. Lord, thank you for the joy you brought us in being together. Oh, I tell you, there's nothing like a trailing snort after. That's good. I'll take it over to amen any day. It's just so good. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I owe you something. I'm, not, I'll, I'll, I'm sorry. <laughs> Preaching for dummies. Don't say stupid things. <laughs> Anyhow. Now I've got to really get on track here. I believe in the blessing of God. I believe it's a real thing. When I was at that wedding, I thought, yeah, the blessing of God is evident here. Now, I can't be all scientific about it. Like, it's not like the blessing of God's on your life, your marriage is all hunky-dory. That's not necessarily how it goes, right? Because people who love God, fully devoted to him, they experience divorce, right? It's not like... You're always, like, rich, right? Because people who love God, fully devoted to him, live in poverty. doesn't mean you have perfect health. Because people who love God, fully devoted to him, are sick and have died from sickness. They live in famine. They're destitute. They're persecuted. Like uh, the list in Hebrews, some are sawed in two. That, that was one of the verses when I was young that really stood out to me. No way. I hope that doesn't happen to me. But that's the reality. That's the history, right? But the blessing of God is a real thing. And I think this story about Solomon emphasizes it again and again and again. David's words to Solomon, don't mess this up, Solomon. Just live for God. Because God's made this awesome promise over our future that he'd always have, um, that if we follow him, that he'd have one of my descendants and one of yours now, Solomon, on his throne, on this throne in Israel. Isn't that incredible? Let's live to see that fulfilled by just serving God and letting him bless us. He says to Solomon, he'll prosper us in whatever we do and wherever we go. It doesn't get any better than that. I mean, why wouldn't you want the blessing of God in your life? I mean, who wants to not have it? It just seems so great, but it comes from seeking first his kingdom, not pursuing all those other things as your first priority. It doesn't mean you don't do that. It doesn't mean you don't try to have a good marriage or fix your finances or do well in your career, but it means that your first priority is seeking the kingdom, seeking Jesus' kingly reign in your life and letting him deal with the secondary blessings and bring them into your life as he sees fit, right? And if you've got 
relationship with God that you didn't earn because Jesus earned it for you, you've already got more than you deserve. I remind myself of that often, right? What did I deserve? Death. Well, spiritual death. I deserve separation from God. And what did I get? Life and relationship with God forever. So you can't ever make me poor, even if I become destitute financially. You can't ever make me poor. I'm an inheritor of that eternal life. I'll always be eternally rich. So now that I'm rich, let's get to the business of the kingdom. Let's seek the kingdom. I'd appreciate an amen or a snort at this point. (laughs) This is good preaching. I don't know why I'm not getting more out of it. All right. So here's Solomon asks for wisdom, and he becomes wise. The famous story that let everyone in Israel know he was, was wise was these two women came. They'd been living together. One of them had rolled over the night and suffocated their own child. They each had a child. And so they come to Solomon. He's freshly got this endowment of wisdom from God. And here these women come, and here's the, here's the opportunity to prove that he has wisdom. One lady says, that's my child. The other lady says, my child. Whose child is it? Solomon has a wisdom from God, and he just says, okay, bring me a sword. What we're going to do is we're going to cut the baby in half and give half to one woman and half to the other woman. Now, I always have this backwards in my mind. I read it in the text, and I was like, oh, it's the other way around. It actually goes like this. The one woman says, no, don't cut the baby in half. Give it to the other woman. Spare the child's life. So that woman was showing her maternal instinct. So everybody in the room is sort of going, mm-hmm. That's the mom, right? Or, I mean, look, Solomon found a way to find out who the mom was. But the funny thing is, I always thought it was the other way around, that before that, the other lady had said, go ahead, cut the baby in half. But no, the other lady actually answers second and says, ah, just go ahead and cut the baby in half, showing no maternal instinct whatsoever, nor any savvy at all. It's like, it's already, like, why don't you just answer like the other lady, you know, keep it confused if you really want the, oh, my goodness. So it's like, you're... This is your child, and your mom instincts are going all out to say, I want my child to live no matter what the circumstances are. You're a mom whose child is dead, and you're grieving, and something is desperately wrong in your emotions, and, you know, mercy for that. But you're saying just kill the other child. So this becomes apparent. This is the mom. There you get the baby. All of Israel finds out about this. They're like, our king is brilliant. He is so wise. Other nations find out. Kings send people, representatives. Come, find out if that Solomon guy is as smart as he really is. They come back. It's true. Queen of Sheba comes. I wanted to find out if you're so wise. He is. She goes, wow, you're you're as wise as everybody told you. Everybody hears it. In the Bible, it even starts listing a bunch of guys that Solomon is smarter than, and they're evidently a list of guys who were the smartest guys of the day. He's saying, he's smarter than that guy, that guy, that guy, that guy. He was the wisest man that lived at the time. Wow. And then he builds the temple. David couldn't do it because he was a man of war. God wouldn't let him, but he builds the temple. It's not really big, but boy, is it ornate. It's gold, and it's magnificent. And when he builds it, it dedicates it to God. God's presence comes and fills the temple. And fire comes from heaven as well, two different things. Wow, it's an amazing thing. And Israel is on top of the world. The nation is just ticking along with its economy. Solomon is the wisest king that anyone has ever heard of. And the temple is filled with God's presence. And at that point, I bet there's some people on the street saying, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy. 
you remember that prophecy? Uh, I think you can find it in 2 Samuel 7. But basically, there'll be an eternal king on David's throne. A son of David will be that eternal king. And they're like, it's got to be Solomon. It's got to be Solomon. I bet people are talking like that. I'm just conjecture, but I think people are probably going, wow, he's so wise, he's so amazing. But I want to tell you, it wasn't as rosy as it looked. See, there's a problem. Gold, horses, and women. Three problems. Let me read you the verses. First Kings 10, 21. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. Gold. Second, 1 Kings 10, 26. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. Gold, horses, and then 1 Kings 11, and I'm just going to read a little bit out of um, the third verse. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. So you might say, what's the big deal? Secondary blessings. Gold, horses, and women. A lot of women. But you remember that part about David saying, hey, just... Do what's in the law. Do what God requires. Obey God. Make sure you do what God wants you to do. What did God want kings to do? I want to read you what God's requirements for kings were out of Deuteronomy 17. It says, The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. Ooh. Or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you you're not to go back that way again. So, too many horses. Next, he must not take, to make, take many wives, or his heart will be led astray, women. And he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Gold, horses, and women. We're all on the don't do list. Don't accumulate for the kings of Israel. Why? Because you can easily trust in gold, horses, and women. Or you can find your life in gold, horses, and women instead of trusting in the Lord. And that's not what God wanted for kings of Israel. God doesn't want kings in the first place. He wanted to rule himself. But when they rejected him and chose him as king, then there's these, these guidelines were there. These were the don't do. But you know what? It wasn't just the don't do. There's a must do list. And I want to read you the next few verses after that. So don't do horses and gold and women and don't do that. Don't accumulate all that and put your hope in that and make that your treasure and go after those secondary blessings, even though maybe some of those are pretty sketchy for being blessings. I don't think a thousand women is a blessing. One is a blessing, a thousand. No way, no way, no way. All right. This is the must-do for the king. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write himself, he's write for himself a scroll, on a scroll, a copy of this law. So get a Bible, but the Old Testament version that he would have had back then. So he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It's to be with him, and he's to read it all the days of his life. He's supposed to read it. The Bible that they had, he's supposed to read it every day. 
Oh, that's a January thing a lot of us aim for, isn't it? To read the Bible every day. This was a requirement of kings. Why is he supposed to read it every day? So that he may learn to revere the Lord his God. So a lifetime pursuit of reverence towards God. I'm just, you could do a bit of a, a checkup on your own spiritual health right now and just say, am I reverencing God more as I age or am I reverencing God less? It might tell you which way things are creeping in your life. So reverence God more, the revere the Lord his God, and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. Obedience really matters to God. Are you becoming more obedient as the weeks and months and years go on or, or less as you age? And also, it's important for him not to consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. What if you are better? What if you're Solomon? What if you're the wisest man who ever lived and God even said that you were? You've got to remember who you were. Remember he said, I'm just a child. How can I lead this great nation? That humility God exalts. But pride he humbles. And you know what? If you've got people pumping your tires all the time saying you're the wisest man. If the queen of Sheba is coming, other kings are sending envoys. And people are saying you're the wisest person we've ever met. We're amazed at how brilliant you are. You eventually begin to believe that for yourself. And you don't... You, the title of this sermon is The King Who Had It All. I just add to that. The King Who Had It All and then forgot where he got it from. Because that was Solomon. Don't consider yourself better for your fellow, fellow Israelites. Solomon had a term for this in his own writings. He called it being wise in your own eyes. God will only exalt humble people. And if you believe you're pressed, if people put you up, best advice I can give you, if you're in a leadership position and you're doing well and you're succeeding at life, people will come and they'll want to add to your pedestal. And you just got to kick that thing out from under you. You got to say, hey, listen, I read Marriage for Dummies. If I do well in this life, it's the blessing of God. It's the grace of God. It's... Yes, there's hard work involved. Yes, there's other things. There's discipline you can learn. But let's be honest. I don't deserve all this. God has been shown his favor on my life. Recognize where it comes from. Don't turn from the, this is more instruction. Don't turn from the law to the right or the left. Some people are like, well, I turned from the law, but I drifted left. So that's okay. Or I drifted right. That's okay. No, no, don't turn. No drifting. No compromising. You know the frog in the kettle story? You put the frog in and it sort of like slowly heat up the water. And it doesn't, it can't discern incremental change in its life. And neither can we. Neither can we until we're cooked. So many people, I run into them and it's like they just incrementally slid. It's like sin didn't take them in one big gulp. It was just little compromises, little compromises, little compromises, little compromises. And they have drifted so far from where they once were. Solomon himself, I can imagine Solomon in his older age, because those thousand women turned his heart away from God. He started worshiping there. He set up uh, temples for their gods, idols for their gods, began worshiping with them. He got it really messed up in his older age. The wisest man in in the world who wrote about how not to be a fool in his book Proverbs became a fool. 
In fact, he disobeyed a lot of the Proverbs that he set up were wisdom. He started strong, so strong, ended weak. Ended incredibly weak. Well, of course, you know, he compromised a thousand times in the marriage department. Can you imagine? I'm so wise. I'm so smart. Other guys can't compromise with gold and horses and women, but I can. I mean, if all you get this morning, if all you get this morning, this will be worth the price of admission. I guess there's no price of admission, but it's worth coming out for. It's for me to tell you, don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't be wise in your own eyes. You're not smarter than sin. You're not. The stuff that have tripped up men and women and boys and girls for thousands of years will trip you up if you play with it. If you play with fire, you will get burnt. You're not the charmed one that won't. Right? If all you did was come to church just to have the pastor tell you you're not that special, that's worth it. The way God set up his world, those rules still apply. If you play around with sin, if you say, I can, I can handle a lot, I can, I can make gold the thing I rely on. I can make horses, military strength, the, the, that sort of power, the thing I rely on. If women find me attractive, it's not my fault. May as well indulge myself. Listen, you can't play with this stuff. You can't play with this stuff. You've got to steer far away from it. So why did he have this requirement? Don't mess with these things, but read this. Read the Bible every day. It's so that you revere God. Because Solomon knew that the fear of God was the beginning of wisdom. He wrote that in Proverbs. He wrote that. He knew that if there was a high reverence factor for God in his life, that when other things came along that were wooing him to be his treasure, to be his life, to be his most important thing, that he would seek, that he'd be able to say no if he had a high reverence for God. If God was his treasure, if God was his life source, if God was at the center of his life and he's building it around him. He knew that. But when everyone tells you you're the smartest man in the room, you got to push back. you got to push back from that. you got to say, no, but, but for the grace of God, I'll be a train wreck. I'll be a train wreck. I love my cousin. My cousin, I've shared this one before, but he's, he's, he's a blessed guy. Big family, big house. He's a lawyer working for the government of Saskatchewan, living in Regina. Every time I go to his house, I just go, this is a blessed family. This is a blessed guy. One night we were at a party, a uh, family party. Someone at the party just said, I think the most important thing in life is just to follow your heart. That's what they said. And this is my cousin who is one of the most blessed men I know in my sphere of influence. And he just said, you know what? If I followed my own heart, I'm pretty sure I'd end up in a cave somewhere alone. Well, we could see that his life was the exact opposite of that. But he knew, he knew. I didn't get here because I'm that smart. I got here because of the grace of God. You know, years ago, when I was, um, look, I was um, single, hoping to be married, and uh, I had met Marnie, so I started reading books about marriage because I wanted to figure out how this worked. And I'm reading these books, 
there was a really popular book that came out. It's called A Kiss Dating Goodbye. And lots of people were reading it. And I saw it, and it was on the bestseller list, and I picked it up, and then I sort of learned about the author that he was still single. And I saved 20 bucks. I just put it back. I was like, that's what I am. I need someone who is actually married and maybe has been that way for 40 plus years. Because if I'm wise in my, you know what? It's like parenting, right? You say, I had four theories about parenting and no kids. Now I have four kids and no theories. Like, <laughs> I wanted to read books by old people who proved they had what it took. They figured it out. They got all their bad theories out of their system in the early days of their marriage. The incinerator heat of actually being in a real relationship just burned that out of them. And now they had a few good ideas left that actually worked. I wanted to read their books. I read marriage books by old people. Why? Because I'm not that special. I'm not that bright. I'm not the charmed one who can come up with some genius plan on how to reinvent this institution that's been there for thousands and thousands of years. No, I just said, what do the old people know from their lifetime of experience? I'm not going to some other dope from my own generation and saying, hey, let's put our collective ignorance together and see if it comes up with brilliance. No, I wanted to know wisdom. I wanted to have a discerning heart, and I, wanted to, and I knew that it would have to be people older and more experienced than me to find it. This is where I want to end with you this morning. Just, I'm just going to end with this. Solomon's shipwreck didn't happen in a moment. I love the video of the bit where he, there's a little bit of shoveling into the heart. See the big heart hole in the ground? That little video, bumper video we watched at the beginning? That's what happened, just incrementally. The frog in the kettle. Bit by bit, the heat changed. But he couldn't detect it. But he, I really believe that when everyone tells you you're good, you're smart, you're strong, that you have to push back on that and say, no, 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 no. I am just like every other guy. I'm just like every other girl. I need the grace of God in my life or I do not prosper. I will not prosper unless I seek first the kingdom of God and leave the secondary blessings up to God. I see that the blessing of the Lord is a real thing in people's lives, and I want that for my life, but I'm not going after those secondary things. I'm going right after him. I want him. I want the source. I want the source that everything flows out of in my life. I want to tell you, this is 2020. It's a great time. to bring, It's a new decade. My goodness. It's also a new year. It's a new month. It's a new week. It's a chance to start new. You know, some of you got my email. If you got the pastor's heart email, you know I just wrote this in a super long email about trying to sort out my own life. Thanks for counseling me. It's wonderful. Um, 
how to put Jesus at the center of my life in this year. So I'm just throwing it out to you. How are you going to put Jesus at the center of your life in this year? How are you going to seek first? How are you going to avoid becoming a Solomon who starts strong but ends oh so weak and defeated? I think the instructions for kings is the instructions for moms and dads and people who work or people who go to school. I think it's the same instructions. you got to be regularly with God in the word, in prayer. I sent the email out last night so people could start tinkering in their own heads about what kind of plan would work for them. But I want to, I want to tell you, this isn't something that you can just give lip service to. You actually have to go all in. You have to really embrace it. You have to recognize in yourself that you have the ability to compromise and compromise and compromise and drift and drift and drift. And years down the road, you'll find yourself in a very uncomfortable place a very unblessed place in your life if you don't do what the kings were required to do, and that's come close to God. So I'm going to get you to stand. I'm going to get you to stand tonight, this morning. And I'm going to invite you. I'm going to invite you. If you say, man, I, I want to just, like, I don't have it all figured out. I'm still tinkering with exactly how I'm going to read the Bible or pray or, or connect with God or, or put him at the center of my life in so many different areas. I don't have that all figured out. You don't have to have that all figured out yet. You don't. But I'm going to ask you if you'd make a commitment this morning. Consider it. I'm not, I don't want to twist your arm. I don't want to, but if you're just in that place and you say, okay, I sort of needed this moment. I needed to have my nose sort of pressed up against the reality of my potential drift in the future if I don't actually take action steps now. If that's you this morning, you say, mm, I needed this. I'm going to invite you to come forward. Man, we haven't done that much here, but I think this morning would be a good one to do it. Come forward as a sign where you just say, I am committing to this, to figure out how to put Jesus at the center of my life, to wrestle with stuff. You know, I'm, you know, even if you don't get it all right the first time, I just, I'm going to wrestle with this because I know I need this. I know if I don't do what Solomon should have done, that I'll end up where Solomon ended up. That the drift is real. And I want not an incremental degradation of the blessing of God in my life, not an incremental uh, destruction in my life, but I want every increment to be building in my life to be greater and greater blessing of God in my life and a greater and greater uh, uh, love for his kingdom and a love for him. That's what I want. I want the passings of years for my reverence for God to go through the roof, for my joy in God to explode for my passion for him to eclipse those other passions that sometimes they sing to me to come and follow them, but no. I want it to be stronger and stronger within me that Jesus is, is my greatest love, my greatest loyalty, my leader and my king. And I know I need to take some action steps. So that's all I'm asking you to do. If you say, that's me, I actually come forward because I'm going to pray for you. That's all, nothing more. But come as a sign that you're saying, okay, you spoke to me and I know I need to do something. And uh, I'll invite you just to come now as the, as the worship team leads us in a song, and then I'll come back and pray.